welcome to Queers & Co, the podcast on self-empowerment, body liberation and activism for queer folks and allies. I'm your host, Jem Kennedy. I'm a transformational coach as well as creator of the Queers & Co zine and community. Hey everyone, welcome to the fourth episode of Queers & Co. It's been super windy here, so I've been putting off doing the recording of the intro and the outro, um, but I don't think I can wait any longer. So if you hear any wind in the background, then please excuse me. Oh, that sounds really rude. It's not my bottom. <laughs> anyway, so my guest today is a trans artist, writer and facilitator. Their work seeks to create joy in the face of joylessness without pretending everything's fine. They develop discussions, workshops and artworks exploring non-binary thinking beyond just gender and its use for queer resilience, solidarity, care and transformational practices. This work seeks to discover how a non-binary feminist practice can resist the oppressions of contemporary society, particularly in helping us all to survive and thrive under austerity. Not only will you get to hear the words of this incredible femboy alien, you'll also get to hear a rare performance of their beautiful work, A Love Poem to My Transness. Please enjoy the captivating Kyron Stamp. Hey, Kyron. Hi. <laughs> so we've been chatting a bit before, um, but we decided to switch the recording on because we're getting like really into it and it would be great to share this rather than <laughs> have to repeat it again. So um, first of all, thank you so much for joining me. I'm really excited. Oh, thanks for having me. <laughs> um, I'm excited too and nervous, but in, in, a, in an excited way. They're quite similar feelings. Maybe they're the same. Okay. <laughs> As we talked about before, we've kind of um, agreed some of the things we wanted to talk about, but I wondered if we should jump straight in with what we were talking about just before we started to record. Yeah, so the- I so. Oh, I was talking about how I'd seen this thing on Instagram, which was, and I can't cite it, I'm really bad at that anyway, <laughs> remembering the names of people. Um, but on Instagram, there seemed to be someone had done some medical research into the link between people who identify as non-binary or trans in some way um, and being on the autistic spectrum and I haven't read it all but it it did that thing in my tummy where I felt strange about it and I guess I'm really excited that somebody did some research but then my automatic questions are like who did the research Mm. um is it a cis person asking a lot of non-binary people questions was it a trans person themselves um and like who is the research for and who makes money out of it? Um, yeah. My usual questions about most things. And also <laughs> it became, it's a thing about the medical model, isn't it? And mm. if that is in relationship to the medical model, which is kind of like my artistic area of research or like my biggest frustration with the world, I guess, that we're in relationship to this idea that some people's ways of being are wrong mm. um, or disordered or um, needs to be fixed in some way. And that doesn't mean that um, that sometimes ways of being can be like really difficult um, to, but the world is not, I just think that people can actually do quite a lot if they're supported in the right way, but that means that we have to be much more flexible. So yeah, I just kind absolutely. of, I mean, I, I get that like fear of, oh, if people understand that research or engage with that research without being critical of the medical model, because maybe they're a person where that medical model actually works for them quite fine. Mm. Um, Like what does that mean about how people view, furtherly view trans people in society? Yeah. But those are all of my um, instinctual uh, 
fear and I and I, I also try to challenge that quite a lot as well like I don't want to be cynical or fearful but I do want to be critical um and also hopeful yeah those are my thoughts that was a bit of rambling and I was asking you if you had seen it yeah. and what you thought about it and if it's I mean I'm I'm talking about something I haven't engaged with properly but there we go well I think it's an important thing to think about as well um and yeah we can try and find the you know the sources but as with anything it's important to question stuff I think the thing that comes to my mind when I hear you say that is um we worked so um our family worked with an autistic advocate in Australia and she is amazing she does really great work I don't know if you um know her Christy Forbes she talks about in some of her work about um people doing research at the moment in order to identify um the genes that cause and I'm doing for anyone who can't see me which is everyone apart from Kyron um, I'm doing air quotes that cause neurodiversity or autism whatever um, neurodiversity we're thinking about in order to remove that gene so that we are less likely to have people in society who are neurodiverse and one what the fuck yeah <laughs> um and two it reminds me of what you're saying about it depends who's looking at it what like who is the audience for the research because I'm thinking well what the fuck like you're gonna just curb all our chances of changing anything if you are aiming to have less neurodiverse people in the world because as I said before like generally people making changes and um living outside of binary society are neurodiverse in some way I feel um and I feel like around me, I have the community to show that like pretty much all my friends are neurodiverse who are activists and who are making actual change. Um, so I don't know how you feel hearing sort of saying, hearing me say that. I feel many things. Mm. Oh, what do I feel? I feel conflicted, I guess. I don't, I mean, it makes me rage to think that someone thinks that they should remove. So my way of thinking about neurodiversity as an artist who doesn't really like who's always made work about like feeling uncomfortable about labels and um queer was the only one that ever really felt comfy because it's the one that's supposed to be like it's really spacious and means everything mm. and doesn't mean anything and um and then non-binary for me I guess I had been using they them pronouns that I don't consider to be gender neutral but maybe we talk about that in a minute yeah it'd be great uh <laughs> I liked non-binary because it basically said, no, not that, none of the above. Mm. Um, and I quite like that it has no in it. And <laughs> <laughs> um, I've lost my train of thought, which also happens when you're nervous, right? That neurodiversity, mm -hmm. for me, I understand it a bit like biodiversity. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of my artwork is about like non-binariness and mountains which don't go together but for me do <laughs> um but that you need diversity in biology and especially as, as things grow if we think about plants in order for there to be uh land and you can't necessarily plant the same thing in the same place over and over because the land needs to be regenerated and these are mm -hmm. like ideas that are from you know like first nations and indigenous people that we forget um or ha and have been erased so to me, it makes no sense that anyone is like the medical model seems to me to be striving for like monoculture yeah. or like the idea that everyone's the same and those ideas. So my like specialist area of research as an artist has always been like 
kind of trying to understand the medical model, how medicine or other big systems were built. And that also includes like the legal system and the justice system and those things that govern our lives. And the medical model came about with the rise of colonialism and the idea that everyone becomes white or the ideas of whiteness that you behave in, a, in the proper way and this is the way to be healthy and all of those ideas mm. are um, a form of oppression and conforming. So the, the idea that I think that people don't realise about history, so um, you know how people have like, I'm a bit obsessive, like I need to know lots of information mm-hmm. and I think that people, if people had more information about how things were built, they might question why they still engage with them without being critical of them. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I guess it just makes me a bit scared. And, and I, I've been a person who's like not very quietly really talking about fascism for a long time. And people get really scared when you throw this word around because they're like, that's a very extreme way of viewing the world. Um, but I don't really think it is. And like that people don't know about eugenics or how that worked in the UK, especially. And, mm. and how those were ideas that people upheld that the idea that some people's biology and their brains and their, the color of their skin means that they are better than. And, and these ideas allowed for people to destroy other people's lives very actively. Um, I'm kind of going off on one based on the fear of what you just said. But I guess I wonder, and then I do this thing where I like, I wonder who is listening to this. Mm. And if people are like, yeah, I know those things already, or those things affect my life because I'm a queer person. And that means I have intersections with neurodiversity and um, health problems and like trying to be recognized by the state as an actual person, um, trying to access trans healthcare, et cetera, et cetera. And I often wonder like how people who are not directly affected by those things understand them or get the information. Mm. And I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. I think, yeah, places like, hopefully places like this where different things overlap. So maybe someone hasn't experienced um, or doesn't know much about neurodiversity because they don't think they've come across it. Um, Because also in society, we're told that like such a tiny fraction of people are neurodiverse. And I do not think that's the case either. Um, Particularly, maybe like explain that term though. So my understanding of that term is not from the medical model of a pathology, like, a diversity of difference but for new, for me a neurodiversity includes um, anything that the medical model will consider to be a mental health issue mm-hmm. um, a learning difference or difficulty uh, a cognitive processing um, um, as well as like le- like learning difficulties or um, yeah basically what I understand is anything that we can't see yeah <laughs> um, which is loads of things right definitely so i've i found this place or this word comfortable for me i've i did i do lots of talk about mental health a lot for a long time as someone who manages their own and cared for other family members and has had like direct and indirect relationships with the systems that govern that and i have said before 
like if you if you have a body and you have a mind which is most people and that's not saying how that body looks or how it functions mm -hmm. or any of those things then you have mental health right the historical separation between the body and the mind happened between some white dudes that could not uh whose rise in their own medicine made them think they were the most important and as men have this ongoing problem of not being able to uh, decide who is the best at something they couldn't come together and realize that their different forms of understandings were necessary for each other to function so they remained separate and this problem has affected millions of people's lives because instead of looking at people that with their bodies and minds being in relationships with each other or the fact that your mind is inside your body mm. uh, they can't resolve and so we look at them separately, which means that often people who have mental health problems, their physical needs are ignored or it, people's physical health it, it like is not seen in relationship to that. Mm. And so I think it's definitely true that we see them as separate. You know, um, as you heard on the Charlotte um, Cooper episode, when you're talking about how separated we are from our bodies you know by diet culture that's another thing you know another layer that came in later um to further separate people from what actually goes on below um yeah. my work i talk about like feeling as though you're um and i can't remember where i read this i wish i could find it but it's not my idea it's um the the sort of feeling of being a pair of eyes on sticks that like walks around in the world and you have no connection to what's below you just experience the world out of your eyes um and yeah I mean that's a lot of it sounds as though our work's really similar in that kind of like thinking of them as one whole thing rather than two separate things that have no relation you know like if you're anxious well for me if I'm anxious for example I instantly get stomach ache there is no like better proof in your body that when you have a thought or a feeling where does it show up in your body it does trust me we're just trained not to listen to it yeah in the last year my big uh this thing of like different levels of knowing mm. right um so i'm an artist that makes things that people see sometimes like performance things and poetry things and music things but i guess mainly what i'm trying to do now is like bring together lots of thinking which usually has happened through conversations or like i write letters to some of my collaborators and we have years worth of like these engagements of letters um and I guess the big thing for me is about non-binary thinking. Mm. So I am non-binary. For me, that is not gender neutral. I am not neutral anything. Um, but this idea of non-binary thinking about trying to hold complex things at the same time mm. and not putting them into binary opposition and not thinking that one thing cancels out the other thing, but they are both and simultaneous and, and, and at the same time, neither which is a very complex thing it doesn't really make any sense um because our whole world is not built like that but this thing of like it's not a competition between my body and my mind where one has to win mm. um it's not an understanding if i'm a man or a woman but also like none of those terms have ever made sense to me but yeah like how do you exist in the world <laughs> practically not just theoretically mm. i guess that's a lot of my i'm interested in like trying to build tools or use tools or like use them in real time um to create groups or to put, pro solve problems or build communities 
um, as well as artwork, which is, I guess, the bits of artwork, I call them in inverted commas, that people don't see because they're not mm-hmm. the, here is me doing a thing. Yeah. Like how uh, I just went through this huge legal process for like five years and it, there, is, there is no joy in there. The, the more you know about that system, the darker it gets. Um, and it's built to, well, it's built to make you stop, right? So it's really isolating and it's infuriating. And uh, it doesn't work. It talks about systemic failures, but it won't look at problems in a system. It just looks in very narrow parameters. Mm-hmm. So at the same time, it was like, how do I... Uh, how do I also have joy in the situation and like how do I look after myself and how do I let other people look after me all at the same time whilst not pretending that this thing isn't extremely heavy and difficult and painful and a, a lot of that also came from like people always telling me I was really strong and I was like well I'm not really and like, how, what does it mean to be like strong and hard and soft and weak and at all at the same time? Like, I don't mm. have to choose. And I think for me, when people talk to me about their transness, and I'm very, very fortunate that a lot of people do come and talk to me. I'm often saying like, you don't have to choose to prove to anyone anything. Like my transness is for is for me. <laughs> And the words that I use are for me to understand. And if other people don't understand what they mean, like maybe they, you have a more complex conversation, but I don't think we should be able to understand everything about something just by this like one singular name that it's given. Mm. I don't know. I am just uh, like going off into my little thoughts and I'm very conscious. So this is another like thing about having neurodiversity, right? Is that I often am like, do I make sense? Am I understood? Yes. Because obviously when you're the person who people are often like, either I've misunderstood or people have misunderstood me. Mm. Um, what I'm trying to do at the moment with my art practice, I guess, is try to capture those complex things into words, even though I don't like words. Um, and I find them really hard to process. <laughs> like reading is a really difficult thing for me. So I guess I'll probably end up making them also into dialogue at the same time like an audio thing you can listen to because I don't imagine that I would understand what I was talking about if I was just reading it and then I wonder if anyone who's listening to this is like oh that makes sense or Kyron is just kind of whiffling okay well no (laughs) I'm right here and I can tell you that definitely makes sense um okay so let's check so I've this is the other thing in the last year I've been trying to do Mm -hmm. so um, try to also live your practice right so not just talk about it do it so I've communicated something and now what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you what you have understood from what I have communicated because I think yeah. a lot of queer communities like communicate correctly but actually we also have a responsibility to understand if you have understood what I said yeah <laughs> absolutely from what I said okay cool so I guess I'm obviously paraphrasing but my understanding is around um moving away from this idea of binary thinking and that you've said like terms like male and female have never made sense to you. Um, and it fits in with what you said before about the idea of diversity, like a biodiverse um, place or in nature needing different components, different plants, different things in order to make up a whole as well. Um, and I know you didn't just say that, but that kind of reminds me of, of what you said before. Um, and then the idea of when people come to you and share what they're feeling about their transness um 
not feeling the pressure for them to either choose one thing or the other because it isn't like that um, and I loved what you said about the um idea of non-binary not being gender neutral like it's not a neutral word you're not a neutral person um that's also a really powerful way to think about it I think it's all um, and it also ties in when we can come to that um later if that feels better but it ties into the thing you were saying in your um in your love letter to your transness the um, poem that you wrote you think about this idea of transness often being described as like a lack or something missing um so yeah just I, I guess it's like a more complex way of thinking just a whole thing we're, we're taught so much as as humans to think about it it's this or it's this it's good or it's bad it's right or it's wrong and there's no in between or balance and even at school like I don't know if this was your experience but I think it's a pretty generic experience that people learn from a young age that um I don't know I'm just thinking of like in in arts for example that something is either this or it's this but then when you get older they're like well actually it's slightly more nuanced than that it's a bit more balanced and so then you're kind of relearning having to have a bit of balance because before you've been taught that everything's so polarized um I still don't think we have enough nuance I think people are very often like quick to jump to the oh it's this or it's this yeah I I, th I feel like we don't give humans enough credit for their ability to hold complexity. Um, so, uh, for many, I I use uh, autobiography as a way of starting usually, and I try to zoom out from that. Uh, and I've like taught a lot about autobiographical performance making and ethics, and also about um, interacting interaction because uh, I do do quite a lot of like interactive performance stuff and ethics and consent mm -hmm. um, but even like even within consent practices we're taught that it's a yes or a no mm. and it's not always a yes or a no it might be a yes and now it's no or a yes like this but no not this little bit like uh, and small people I did a lot um, of work with, with writing education programs and I worked with kids for a long time and I worked in play which was like a labour government movement where kids had free choice to decide what they wanted to do to learn social skills radical um, <laughs> doesn't exist anymore um, oh yeah uh, and this idea like actually we give small people choice, but actually we're only giving them a choice between two things. And my, my thoughts about that are like a choice between two is not a choice at all. A choice is to be able to like change and adapt and like design the answer, mm -hmm. <laughs> which means that there is an infinite possibility of things. Um, but obviously our society is built on, uh, you know, the correct behavior or capitalism teaches us to simplify we don't talk about how you know oversimplification in my opinion is another form of control mm. um because things aren't simple and they shouldn't be able to fit into a tweet and things shouldn't be a tagline and um making things should be should have time and designing things should take a long time <laughs> and uh, making artwork should take a long time and relationships should take a long time. And we are told to move really fast and be able to make decisions. And if you have to move that fast, it's much easier to just choose in a binary. Yes, right. So true. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We were talking before we started recording about um, 
someone that we know in common who is an amazing person who runs a consent-based setting for children and small people so um my children attend one of those settings and it is all around consent and I think quite often as you say with the time like everything is a rush we need to get on with it and people say consent-based practice doesn't work because it takes too long so if you have like um say a holacracy for example where everyone in the company is entitled to making an you know, having a stake in the decision and people will sit around in circle and they'll talk about what it is that they want to achieve and what the vision is. And the criticism by capitalism is it takes too long. No one ever makes a decision, nothing gets done. And actually with that framework that you're talking about in mind, if we're thinking about playing the long game and making decisions that actually work and are lasting rather than coming up with something you like wrote while you're on the loo at five o'clock in the morning, <laughs> um, those are ways to change things and also there's something very much like again like it's very ableist as well to say you know decisions have to be quick if i'm in a situation with my children and i say right um we've got to go if we genuinely have to rush out for something please put your shoes on the more pressure i put on if, if i was to just go put your shoes on put your shoes on put your shoes on it would just result in a shutdown it wouldn't be possible to do anything and it's like the more pressure we put on to someone or something or a system and the less choices we give the more we can force people into the direction that we want them to go and you can see how that like totally links in with white supremacy and capitalism and all of those things yeah it's the illusion of choice right yeah it's not a choice it takes too long so i think that also, so the other things that I'm trying to write in this, whatever this thing is, is like, if a non-binary thinking feminism, a way of living would be um, not the tools of colonialism or white supremacy and, and patriarchy, for me, those all those things are very yeah, close. Definitely. Um, and to say there's not enough time or it takes too long or nothing gets done is a gaslighting because it does and you can see it like I live in a housing cooperative which isn't the first one that I've lived in and we come to decision through consensus and we have processes for that and we make space that needs to be made for people to be heard and yes it's slightly longer and you have to give more time but actually there's quite a lot of time mm. and I think when I had to stop working in the same way that I was working and I had to slow down like for me I have to be slow to know what I'm feeling I've also realized recently that I did know that there was a difference between thinking and feeling but I had a tendency to think my feelings mm -hmm. um and instead of being able to feel them which and feeling your feelings shouldn't really have any like thoughts or words or story or anything attached to it um and actually that's a process that's slow <laughs> it doesn't happen overnight like you can't decide when it's done i think that's like a griefing process right you you can't decide mm -hmm. okay i'm going to grieve for today and then i'm going to be done like those feelings are going to come up and they need the space they need and if you push them away or tell them a binary choice like not like i'm choosing not to do that it they come out in a different way if a choice is rushed and it's also really difficult, isn't it? Because we're living in a world where people have to make money, people feel under pressure. If you don't move fast, you might not get the job. 
um, I just read a thing this morning about the actual statistic of, of unemployment in the UK and how it's much higher because of the type of employment that people are having instead of the full-time employment. Mm. Um, that thing of that has to be able to exist at the same time as what we actually have to deal with in front of us. But you have to imagine the world that you want to live in and try to enact it <laughs> in order for it to like be seen because I think a lot of people think that these things can't happen because they can't see them, but you actually can see them <laughs> if you if you try to do them. Ask me another question. <laughs> um, well, where would you like to go? I feel like there are so many avenues. We um, talked about a few different things before. So I guess one thing I'm interested to ask about is there, um, you mentioned a, a housing cooperative and also having mm-hmm. lived in one previously. Mm-hmm. And I wondered if you kind of briefly touched on it whilst we've been recording, but when you were in a, a space where people were popping in and supporting you and supporting each other, I just oh, wondered yeah. if you'd be happy to talk a bit more about that, because I think that's a really, as you say, like it's great to actually hear about things in practice rather than just talk about how it might work if we um, imagined it. Yeah, exactly. And imagining is really important. Mm. right? But I guess, so I just went through this inquest process um, and I guess people's understanding of an inquest process is something that have heard of maybe the Grenfell inquest process or the Hillsborough inquest process. Um, and what that is, is it's not judicial. So it doesn't mean that someone's going to prison at the end of it. But what it means is it's like an investigation by the coroner and a coroner is the person who looks at um, the way in which someone died. Um, and they try to work out what happened and who is responsible for that. Uh, and my sister passed away whilst in care of the state, so she was under section. Um, and so obviously, very logically and rationally, we suspect that the people that were supposed to be looking after her are responsible for her death or what happened in order for her to die um, from a health condition uh, that is completely a death that was avoidable. And they were trying to say it was like a natural cause death, which is actually um, a thing in society that people don't know much about, whereby a lot of deaths in those kind of care settings and also old people's homes and also people who um, are living in supported care environments, um, a lot of their deaths when they happen are written off as natural causes. Um, and that means that the statistic of deaths changes. So they're not actually recorded as anything other then that was just what happened. And obviously that's pretty scary yeah. and dangerous. And um, yeah, like when we talk about statistics, coroners, are, um, those kind of inquests are very important to forming those statistics. And in my opinion, they're not particularly accurate. <laughs> um, so our knowledge, you know, there was lots of things when the government, when we just had the general election about how many people died due to austerity. And my argument is that number is way, 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 way higher. Yeah just that it's not recorded properly <laughs> um, so that whole process is very long and was like it's going to be five years since she died in March and it's still kind of not really over mm-hmm. um, the inquest bit is over and at the and I think for me I had to learn how to have really clear boundaries about when I could engage with that process and when I couldn't and how I could ask people for help because that process and also having engagement with the mental health system for a long time and like lots of shame around mental health problems and like trauma and being a survivor and all of these things are really difficult. 
um, I had to work out how to let people close to that without feeling like I was burdening them with my things, my very heavy weight. And I guess this is where this like non-binary thinking started, like how can something be really, really, really heavy and mm -hmm. also be light at the same time? And how do I let someone hold something with me whilst I'm still holding it? And if at times that I need to put, give them more of the weight, I also have somehow I can take it back. Cause obviously once you give weight away, it's very hard to then carry it again, which is where um, relationships can become difficult because people are trying to support each other, but they don't know how basically. Mm. And obviously I'm in a relationship with a care system as we can see from what happened to Kate, who is my sister, they don't really know how to care for her either. <laughs> like no one knows how to care. Create so one the inquest was going on. I had to stay in another house because it wasn't where I lived. So I invited some of my friends who are also artists and makers and like of, of many different types of people to come and be in that setting with me. And they were invited. They didn't have to come to court um, if unless they wanted to. Uh, but there was no expectation, and they could come and go for as long as they liked. And the principles of that space was that. I wasn't just asking them, but I was asking many people and this was being held by many people at once. And in that environment, people lived together and cooked together and they negotiated their time. And amazingly, they didn't have to have really long meetings about what they were going <laughs> to do. Um, and people bought joy. So one of my friends who is a pole dancer bought a pole and we set up a pole and someone, you know, people Amazing. bought things to, so that they also use the space of the invitation that it was useful for them. Like, I had to go and do this thing and it's a week long. Like it was really a really intense process, but I had to be, have this space. And if other people wanted to come and just do their work or like um, do their tax return or whatever thing they have to do that they're not doing or <laughs> want to do, um, they could. And to negotiate a care practice um, and what that looks like in real time, because I, don't have a family system that are going to show up in that way so I think when you are a person like that it's very easy to to be very independent this thing of like people saying I'm really strong right mm. but that's not that I used to get really angry and be like well it's kind of out of necessity <laughs> like the, the other option is what yeah. but actually me learning to be like oh I can be strong and also be like I can't do this on my own mm -hmm. um, I need help reading these legal forms and I need help uh, signing this thing I need help and like people came into the room and sat at the back like it was in, a kind of incredible like a bunch of very very queer queers all <laughs> sat at the back of this very very proper environment um, yeah it was kind of amazing and I don't know how I would have done that if it wasn't for those people and obviously there's like privileges involved. People could, but people made time, you know, mm. they were like, this is what I have to do in my work schedule, but I can give this many hours. And like, even if they just came for dinner or an hour and like, people didn't even do that. Like people sent me voice notes and messages and, and there was no expectation for me to reply. And I think that's a care practice that we don't talk about where we do things without expecting a return. Mm. And just because someone is there that doesn't mean like halfway through the or like during it they can't be like you know what, I, I need to go to bed or I need to leave or mm -hmm. something has changed and I don't take that personally of being like well you said you would give me support and now you're leaving like it's all just fine I, I guess my frustrations of the 
the art world often uh, in a formalized setting is that I'm often saying to them, I can't make to the way in the way that you need me to. Mm-hmm. Like I can't, I need to have really long timelines. I need to have my access worker with me. I need you to not ask me what the thing is before I've made it. I need you to trust me. I need to be able to say, do you know what? I can't do this and put it down if I need to put it down and pick it up later. And none of those things work in the art world or in capitalism at all. Like if you said you're going to do something, you have to complete it to the end now. (laughs) That is the ideal, right? But it's not always possible. Mm. And is it the ideal though? Because... Okay, so imagine someone says, right, you need to create a piece of work and it needs to be done within two weeks. Like, okay, so the ideal is that you get it done, but to what standard? Like, will it actually be what it could, the full potential of what it could have been? So it isn't ideal, is it? <laughs> if someone asked me to make something for it with a two-week deadline, I would be like, you're going to get something that I've already made and I'm going to make it, I'm going to tweak it a bit so it makes a bit more sense within the context and I'm going to rehearse it so mm-hmm. that it's good. Um, and that's it. I often try to talk to people who are making things. So when I couldn't perform all the time, um, I was helping make performance or theatre or live art in various capacities. So I also have like technical skills and design skills and like I do sound and things like that. So I could carry on being in my little strange weirdo world. But <laughs> no, one, no one could see me. Mm-hmm. Um, if it was another industry... Like if you think of yourself as an engineer or as like they get to set the terms of how long a project takes and what they need to do that. Yes. And, and I, and I mean, that's a whole other thing about like being valued for your work, whatever your work is um, and knowing how much you're worth and like doing the numbers of how much money you actually need to live. Mm. And I guess, you know, we're also living in a world where people are encouraged a lot to work for free. You know, there was, there was some things about like learning, working for free. If you're learning a skill, or you have no experience, even though I think that's wrong. <laughs> um, or people should be at least provided their travel and food money. Mm-hmm. DMs are a thing. How do you, by you knowing what you need and not moving. I talk about that sometimes a lot as well about boundaries and limits and the difference Mm. between those things. So boundaries to me are like flexible, slightly flexible because they are in negotiation with someone else, but a limit doesn't move. Mm -hmm. And I think as makers and also as people who engage in activism or people who engage in like relationships or, or live, like knowing where your limits are is really important because they shouldn't, move Mm. and they're going to be different for different people at different times and it's that thing of like limits don't move but actually at the same time they do move and there's a non-binary thinking because Mm. sometimes they they have to move depending on what's going on at the time that's complex to hold isn't it like to be able to say limits don't move but limits also move yeah but it makes sense because people have different limits at different points in their lives and obviously depending on you know you know the day of the week or like what it is that they've woken up like that morning um yeah, I guess it's that, um, it's probably that willingness to all, um, doing the work, I guess, to get to know what your own boundaries and limits are and when they are and aren't movable so that mm-hmm. when you move them, almost like you have a key to your limits and you're the only one that can lo- unlock it. So no one can come and just be like, hey, I'm going to put loads and loads of pressure on you until you let me through or until you let me do this thing that I know you don't want to do. Um, and I think that's the thing, it comes with consent, right? We so often don't, 
understand that we even have consent in situations that we can have limits or boundaries because it's normally such a separate thing you're just supposed to be coerced into doing things yeah and like let's look at the if I can like the legal process as a Mm. like I'd say this a lot even on on a social level that like I don't think text messages are particularly consensual because I try to, I try to, doesn't mean I always get it right. I am definitely not a perfect human by any means. But I try to say to people, is it okay if I ask you a question about this now? Mm-hmm. Before I ask the question, and the legal process isn't that. Like lawyers, because of the way that it functions, like they kind of demand all of the things right now and I have to make a decision right now and like, it, they don't really do things in advance because they're really fucking busy. Oh, I swore on your thing. It's okay. Sorry. There's always swearing. Don't worry. Okay, <laughs> I swear a lot. Um, no, I swear away. <laughs> um, they're really busy. And so they demand, like, we have to do this right now, which means mm-hmm. I have to drop everything I'm doing and do this right now. Or like this new piece of evidence has come in or like this, we managed to get this thing or we need another uh, copy of all of your bank statements because I've mm-hmm. been doing legal aid, which is a whole other horrible thing for a long time and so in order for me to be like this is non-consensual and it's also just like really not good it's it's hard to engage with because non-consensual practices are difficult to to engage with um how do I put boundaries in so like stupid like really small things like I have uh forward on my inbox and these little folders so the emails just go into that folder so if I as long as I don't look at my phone because they come in all in a line I can engage with them as I need to. Mm-hmm. And obviously sometimes I can't, I have to do it on their terms, but like, how do I make it a little bit easier for me so I can still decide when I'm ready to engage with the pain of that? Because essentially every time I do it, I'm also engaging with the grief of the situation. And so like, I try to have consensual practices with my friends and, you know, sometimes because of my mental health stuff, I need support. I like have worked very hard to try to be able to ground myself and like, but there are times when that can't happen and I need support. And like, I think, I hope if my friends are listening to this, they know that if I ask them for help, that I'm not just asking them, that that message has gone out to quite a lot of people all at once because I don't want ever anyone to ever feel like it's not like it's, it's a need and it needs to be addressed right this second but there is consent involved so if you can't it's not just all on you Mm. and I think that's what the legal process does or any kind of activism at that kind of legal level is that if you don't push nothing will happen and I'm not saying that I did all the work like there are all of these people unfortunately with the same hospital people who lost people in the same place that came before me who pushed really 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 hard and I wouldn't have got anywhere if they hadn't have done that but it's that thing of it takes over your life and I and I still wanted to retain I still wanted to I could feel the process making me hard (laughs) and I still Mm -hmm. wanted to remain soft and so like trying to work out how how to do that whilst doing it Um, But what it has, what that whole process has done is every time that someone tells you something is not possible, that's, it's fucking bullshit. We haven't worked out exactly how, and it won't be perfect, but we can try something else. We can try to do that. And it might be like clunky 
I feel a bit awkward, like boundaries and consent often do when you live in a society that is non-consensual. Like the whole government is non-consensual. They make decisions without our consent all the time, even when mm-hmm. we say no. Yeah. But you can't, but it can happen. Do you have any other questions for me? <laughs> Yeah, one thing that I just was really intrigued by, um, and I don't know how you came, like if, if you want to even talk about this, but on your website, when you first go on, you, you describe yourself as a queer femboy alien, which is so cool. <laughs> and I just wondered like how that came about. Before on my website, <laughs> uh, I, hate, I, hate my webs- I hate my website. <laughs> really? <laughs> or like, I find... I guess maybe it's beca- like trans things, right? Like it's hard to talk about me in a fixed way. Mm. So, and the website is all about fixing down who you are and what you do and why. And I'm like, oh, that's changing all the time. And I don't know, it makes me uncomfortable, I guess. But before I just used to have a list of labels of all the things that other people have called me, like ever. Mm-hmm. And then it just said, I prefer Kyron Stamp. Yeah, I love that. That was it. <laughs> And I have always, I guess there was this thing of femness, like, or like the intersections between my gender identity and my sexuality. And like, I think, like for me on the inside, I think I probably am like very close to a very camp boy. <laughs> and, and I often was like, oh, I'm a bit confused by my femness it's so complex these things because I don't think feminist is anything to do with femininity or being female or mm. and I know you shouldn't interchange all of those words but I just did so <laughs> there you go. um like like certain clothes are inherently femme or certain actions are inherently femme or like but I guess I I guess there's a thing about non-binariness about as it being a rejection or a neutrality or like a, a mask leaning and something that's assigned to uh, people who are assigned female at birth um, and people who are white and all of those things. I'm a white person, um, but I am not the epitome of non-binaryness. Like most of my understanding of people who are non-binary came from like queer, black, radical femmes <laughs> um, historically. And that space of being like, I can be all of these things. And I guess I don't want to reject my feminist, like, I'm really femme and I'm still a boy. And I guess the alien thing is because uh, my sister always used to say that I was an alien. That I was so weird. I must be from another <laughs> planet. Obviously there's other ways in which that word is used, but for me, it's just kind of like a nice, it's nice. I, I, I miss her saying this to me. So I guess that's why I use it. But you know, are all queers from another planet? I mean, we're existing in a, on this planet in a way that doesn't necessarily recognize our existence. So are we existing on another planet? And then there's things like, um, I'm really into like sci-fi <laughs> <laughs> or um, yeah, like imagined realities. My, one of my favorite books, however heavy it is, and probably too close to home is like Women on the Edge of Time, which is like a wonderful, wonderful book about the imagining of utopia and existing within dystopia, which I guess is kind of a bit like being queer all all the time. Like, uh, so that's probably why. And because I just, it's just, words are really confusing. And I guess I was listening to the first podcast and they said about the feminist principle of naming things. 
And I, that was really interesting to me because uh, as I was saying about um, like the history of medicine or the history of science is supposed to, and is very, you know, patriarchal and was in, like mostly white men making those decisions. So I've always seen that the idea of naming something necessarily is not feminist, but actually mm. putting theory into practice as very feminist. Like mm-hmm. how do we practically, how does this exist in, in, in this doing? So I just thought that was really interesting and like, what does it mean to be a femboy alien in practice? Well, I, I don't know. It means that I don't think that those words are any indication of who I am, who I love, what I need, um, what I'm capable of, the skills I have. They're just words I like. Mm. Um, or like who, how I like to have sex or like or anything about my genitals or anything. Like it just doesn't tell you anything. And I think... I, I find words very playful and a lot of the, I make quite silly things like the soy boy thing I made is like really silly and like actually being silly with words allows us to, to not be limited by them in the same way. Mm-hmm. Did that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> you were talking about how you'd seen my trans pride. I was commissioned by trans pride in the Marlborough two years ago to make something and I made this poem and you said that you'd seen it on the internet. Yeah. Um, and I wondered if this was the appropriate moment to do it for you live. Yeah, it would be great to hear. Thank you. This is a love poem. And I feel like our transness is always in subject to something that is missing or that I am broken or I am not quite fulfilling something for somebody else. So I wrote this love poem. Suppose I were to begin by telling you I had fallen in love with my transness. Suppose I were to speak this as though it were a confession. Suppose this love had given me the ability to meet you. Suppose my transness has given me the aptitude to see possibility, to move with movement, to value change to give space for you to be you in your infinite number of impossible contradictions. Allowed me to meet you in this unknowing on each given day. Suppose my transness has alleviated my need to understand you and instead has gifted me the capacity to trust that you know your being best and I am just fortunate enough to witness you. Suppose my transness lets me know that if you change, I have not lost you. What was before is not now a deceit. You have changed as you needed in a sick world that tells us nothing ever changes. Or perhaps you have not changed. You are just generous enough to really let me see you. So beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> oh, you're so welcome. <laughs> yeah, it's an incredible poem. And was there, um, so the recording that people could watch on YouTube, mm-hmm. is that the first time you performed it live? No, so I performed it the first time live to open Trans Pride Art Night, which is like the beginning of Brighton Trans Pride at the okay. Marlborough, but not this year, the year before. Yeah. And I like stood on... Uh, the table that's outside that's painted in trans colors like the yeah um and did this poem and then at the end of that I like 
I reappropriated some culture. So I uh, rewrote a Martha Wainwright song to be about the trans experience rather than about her winching about man. Um, <laughs> and what else? Yeah, so that would be the first time. And then that was at Queefy, which is an incredible night in London run by Reese's Pieces and uh, I would highly recommend going to. It's one of the, my favorite places to perform ever. What a warm, what a warm environment. Um, but I don't think I have performed it too many times then. Uh, and it's the only thing I'm like really funny about recordings of things that happen live. This is yeah. probably why I feel so funny about being on a podcast, right? Because a lot of what I do, it like disappears. And people remember it mm. and they have a relationship to it, but it's not fixed in time. Yeah. Uh, and I, I find that quite uh, di- difficult in some way. Like I don't really like, like people recording me while I'm performing. Like I'm always like, but if you're really here, like you don't need to record me. And I like yeah, that you just keep remember me it. for later, but, and it's also probably like a relationship to body stuff. Like mm. how I, my body and me have a very complex relationship. And I think that poem is about that. Or like, I can, I can love myself as a trans person. And that's not a thing that we, like transness is often framed by like a hatred or a discomfort with your body. And that doesn't mean that I don't have a discomfort with my body. And there are parts of it that I would like to change, but I can also love my body at the same time. Mm. <laughs> Those things can exist. They don't cancel each other out. It's not binary. <laughs> um, so I guess maybe the recording thing might be the fact that I have to then see this version of my body that maybe other people see that I don't feel. And that's quite complex mm-hmm. for me. I just had this feeling about like, or this thought about insecurity. This is another thing that I kind of think about a lot about as trans people like, for me and I don't speak for as trans people all trans people I just speak about me mm-hmm. um I don't feel like there's a lot of space for me to be insecure or to not know and um the pressure within my community and especially within a higher visibility of in the cis world is that I have to be 100% sure at all times <laughs> that I know and I mean mostly like I never really question if I'm trans but like when people are like, oh, you're transmasculine or are you, all these other words that I think I usually use for cis people to understand me better. Mm. They don't make that, that I don't know. Like it, I don't understand myself within those words because they're very fixed and I, I'm allowed to not be sure. I guess that, that's back to the same answer, like why femboy alien? Because I, mm. get, I, I got to decide what the words are that work for me. And they might change and that's fine. And I think that there's loads of complex stuff about that, but it's okay for it to change and it's okay for you to question your gender and then come to a point where you're like, no, I am cis. And that doesn't make you dis- deceitful. It just meant that you did a really good thing of like thinking about your body and your relationship to the world and what it means. And like, you did some self-work, congratulations. You did really well. You don't have to cut, don't have to be like, it doesn't have to be fixed at the end yeah and we don't talk about that it's either you are or you aren't yeah those are my last final thoughts of complexity for you on your podcast thank you (laughs) I wanted to say thank you for inviting me although I have that like huge imposter syndrome thing where I'm like I don't understand why you want to talk to me um but I'm really glad you did and it was also really nice to meet you in real life 
you too like this life but not just on the internet life thanks yeah. <laughs> thank you I hope you enjoyed listening to Kyron as much as I enjoyed chatting to them and how beautiful is their poem I got so carried away chatting to Kyron that I forgot to ask what they're loving at the moment and luckily they were happy to share it with me afterwards so I can share it with you it's the book Emergent Strategy, Shaping Change, Changing Worlds by Adrienne Marie Brown. She also wrote Pleasure Activism, which is another excellent book. For links to these and other resources, check out the show notes, which are on my website, gemkennedy.com slash queersandco, um, and this will be slash 004. If you'd like to show Kyron some love for taking the time to chat to me, please head over to their Instagram at stampkyron, S-T-A-M-P-C-H-I-R-O-N and let them know that you enjoyed the episode and also be sure to keep an eye out for their future workshops and performances. Also, please keep sharing the podcast with anyone you think might be interested in it. I still have some incredible guests lined up for the series and I want to make sure as many people as possible get to hear what they have to say. Also, you may have been expecting an autistic advocate this week, but she'll be joining me next week. So make sure you tune in there.